Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. How are you? All right, if you have a Bible, let's open to Romans chapter 8, where we left off two weeks ago. We're going to read verses 14 through 17, and um, it's good to be back. Jennifer and I had a great week away. I was preaching at a church in Atlanta, Mount Vernon Baptist Church, where my dear friend pastors, and it was just wonderful to be with them, but I'm really glad to be back. And this week, I had the opportunity to listen to Robert's message that he preached from Acts chapter 6 last Sunday. Let me just plead with you, if you missed it or you weren't here or whatever, if you, if you didn't listen to that message, I just encourage you, exhort you to, to find that on the podcast. It was so helpful. It was so encouraging. And it was one of those kind of culture-forming messages that I think is just really, really important in the life of the church. And we're back in Romans 8 today. And so um, here's my plan. I'm going to read verses 14 through 17. If you're visiting with us for the first time, we, we really encourage you to have a Bible open on your lap. You can use one of the Bibles in front of you and keep that if you don't own a Bible. We're going to peel back verses 14 through 17 of Romans 8. We've been working through this letter to the Roman church written by the Apostle Paul for about a year and almost a half now. And we're just marching through it. And we find ourselves in the middle of chapter 8, which many commentators and some Christians through the history of the church have said and believe is one of the greatest, most beautiful, most gospel-saturated chapters in all of the Bible. That's Romans chapter 8. And we're at a kind of high point in Romans 8. So let me read verses 14 through 17, and then, and then we're going to look at four truths that I think that, the, that, that we see in this text about, about the role of the Spirit in our life. Starting in verse 14, Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Okay, let's, let's before we dig into this text, let's just take an account of where we are and the magnitude of what Paul is saying in, in, in this paragraph here. We've been looking at Romans, which has clearly said that all people by nature are sinners and there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to make ourselves right with God. And so the answer of the gospel is that God the Father puts forward God the Son to be a wrath-absorbing sacrifice on the cross. Jesus, God in the flesh, the God-man, becomes the mediator between The Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, he becomes the mediator between God the Father and mankind by maintaining his infinite godness and taking on the form of humanity. He becomes a man like us in every way. 
He's tempted as we are yet without sin, where we have disobeyed God, he completely obeys God, and he lays down his life as a sacrifice on the cross to bear and to remove and to extinguish the wrath of a holy, righteous judge that should be ours. And then he rises again in victory over sin, death, and the grave, and calls all people to turn from trusting in themselves and to put their hope in him. And the good news of the gospel is that he even enables us who are his people to come alive, to be made alive, and to have a new heart, which with that new heart comes the gift of faith that he requires of us so that we can turn away from trusting in ourselves and put our hope in him so that we can be acquitted before a holy judge. Now... And here's the wonderful news of the gospel. We who were rebellious in our treason against the holy God have been made right. We've been pardoned. Our guilt has been removed. And now we are pardoned rebels who are justified before a holy judge. That's really good news. But what this text says is it gets even better. Not only are we merely pardoned rebels who have been acquitted of our guilt and justified, now we are made children of God. We're adopted. So we were formerly enemies of God, now made right with God and brought into a relationship with God as sons and daughters of God. Friends, this is almost too good to be true. But it is true. And the way that this happens is through the work of the spirit of adoption. And so I want us to peel back this text and look at four truths, four ways that the spirit works in the life of God's children, Christians, believers in Jesus. Let's just peel it back. So let's look at the first way that the spirit works in our lives as believers. One, according to this text. Now this is not an exhaustive, an exhaustive treatment of all that the Spirit of God does. That, that we'd have to mine the whole Bible for that. But it, it, in this text, this is, this is what I see in this text. Four ways that the Spirit works in us. Number one, the Spirit leads us into obedience. The Spirit leads us into obedience. So look again at, at verse 14. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So two weeks ago when we left off, we looked at, we looked at verses 12 and 13, which precede verse 14. And, and the point there in verses 12 through 13 is that even though we are made right by grace, we then have to, in a sense, validate, vindicate prove the, the validity of our salvation by the fact that we are putting to death the remaining residue of sin that works in us. And so, if it says in verse 13, look at verse 13 right before we were read, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so the whole point that Paul is making about this grace that is so free and without condition is that if it's truly at work in a person's life, it will produce a kind of sanctification, a kind of ability to fight sin, an, 
an obedience in a person's life. And, that, and that's exactly what he says. He's just confirming what he has really said in verses 12 and 13. And what we looked at a few weeks earlier about how we're all indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. But you don't just have the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit is necessarily active in your life and he's leading you into obedience. The point, I think, is, is that the Christian life is not merely an intellectual acknowledgement of a set of doctrinal beliefs. James says that even demons believe. But Christianity is not just believing. It's believing and being renewed and regenerated and made new and being enabled to glorify God in our lives. In fact, I just want you to show, I want to show you how important this is in Paul's thinking as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. This, this idea of obedience after we've been made new by God is actually what Paul says is the whole point of his ministry. So, just keep your finger there in Romans 8 and go to Romans 1, the very beginning of Romans. And Paul says in Romans 1, I want you to see this. He's saying hello. He's greeting the church in the first verse. He's telling them who he is. He's a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle. He's set apart for the gospel of God. I'm reading from the first verse of Romans, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son David who descended from concerning his son who descended from David according to the flesh, who was declared to be the son of God and power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. I mean, I mean you know, Paul, Paul's, Paul's just saying hello. He's just opening up and he's just getting the gospel in because he can't wait. And that, I, I love that. I, I, I do that too sometimes if you haven't noticed. I just, let's just talk about the gospel and that sets the table and then let's get into the gospel and then let's close with the gospel, okay? But look at verse... <laughs> Look at verse 5. He says, all of this, he's received this ministry through whom we receive grace and apostleship. So why has Paul received grace and why has he been sent and commissioned by God to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations? So he says, the whole reason I'm here, the whole reason I received grace and the whole reason I received this ministry was to actually preach the gospel so that it would bring about a change in your life, an obedience in your life, a God-glorifying obedience in your life, and then go all the way to the end of Romans. So that's the beginning of Romans. Look at Romans chapter 16, the very end of Romans. He began with this idea that this is why I exist, and then he ends Romans with this same idea. So Romans 16, which we'll get to sometime in 2019 maybe, <laughs> Um, says this, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, there it is again, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. So do you see that? He bookends this idea that the whole purpose of the preaching of the gospel and the ministry that he's been called to is to bring about the obedience of faith, which is exactly what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer. So the Spirit leads us into obedience. Just two quick thoughts before, before we, we move on. Well, maybe, maybe even more than two, just maybe three quick thoughts. If there's, no, if there's no, at least some measure 
of obedience and sanctification in a person's life, then that is likely evidence that there's no true justification. Do you see that? There's, and we got to be careful here because we know, I mean, we all still struggle with sin, right? And so there's this kind of, like, we're, we're, we're walking this gospel road where we're prone to fall over on one side of the ditch into a kind of legalism. And the moment we correct ourselves and, and aren't legalistic, we're prone to fall over into the other side of the ditch, which is a kind of sinful liberty. But the gospel road is that true justification will lead to true sanctification. And the Spirit will lead us into obedience. So that, that's the first thought. The, the second thought is that, just, just I've been thinking about this recently, the Spirit, as it leads us, this idea of leading, will, think about this, the Spirit will, sometimes in an American church culture, we sort of pit the Bible versus the Spirit as if they're sort of uh, two opposing forces, like there's Bible people and then there's Spirit people. That is not a true dichotomy. The Spirit wrote the Bible. So you realize that the Holy Spirit agrees with the Bible and the Bible agrees with the Holy Spirit. There's no contradiction there, right? And so just one application, the Spirit, if the Spirit leads true Christians, the Spirit will never lead you to do something that the Bible clearly forbids. No, thank you. Amen. Praise God. I don't even have to convince you of that. That's awesome. And then a third, th third little thought. Just notice this here. This is another kind of common American colloquialism. We just talk about everybody being, we're all God's children. No, no, we're not. We're all created by God. But clearly here he said, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Clear implication is, is that those who don't have the Spirit of God are not led by the Spirit of God are not sons and daughters of God. So again, there are only two types of people in the world, right? Those that are sons of God, daughters of God, children of God, and those that are not. Okay. Truth number two about how the way the Spirit works in our lives, according to this text, is that the Spirit leads us to freedom as chosen children of God. The Spirit leads us to freedom as chosen children of God. And I want you to see that in verse 15. So let's look at verse 15 again of Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So Paul is contrasting here this spirit of slavery. And what is that? mean, I think it probably means that we are enslaved to our fallen will before we are regenerated and made alive by God through the sovereign act of salvation. He's reminding those that are in Christ, he's reminding the Roman Christians 
that that is not who you are. You need not be anxious. That's why we read from Matthew 6 today earlier where Tyler was reading Jesus' words about how we don't need to be anxious because we have a good father in heaven who knows how to take care of his children. And Paul is, is spelling that out here. He's applying that to the Christian life. And he's saying, he's reminding these Roman Christians who like us are prone to fear and prone to anxiety and prone to forget their status. Their new status is not only forgiven, but children of God. He's saying you haven't received that spirit of slavery, but you've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So what is the significance of this phrase, the spirit of adoption? Now, instantly in our minds... We, when we hear the word adoption, and it's a legitimate, it's a legitimate instant thought, is we think, of, we think of physical adoption. And there are many families in this church who have adopted or, or are adopting. In fact, there's a family right now in Crosspoint that is in um, uh, Austin, Texas, is it? The, the Scots who are right now currently adopting a child that was born there. Praise God for that. Praise God for, for the many adopting families in our church and in our city. But theologically, what's behind this phrase, the spirit of adoption? So if you look, if you're, we're right there in Romans 8. Look over to Romans chapter 9 and look at verse, verse 4. Paul is in Romans chapter 9, which we're going to get into, which is an incredibly critical chapter. And <laughs> I mean, I don't know why I say that. They're all critical. I know that. But seriously, though, I mean, Romans 9. Okay. He's, he's lamenting the fact that many Israelites, ethnic Jews, have rejected the gospel. And he says in verse 4, and we're going to get into this too much to explain right now. I just want you to see this point. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So in that sense... Paul's not talking about a kind of you know, physical adoption that we see in the sense here. He's, he's, he's actually speaking on a spiritual level about how Israel became God's people. They were adopted. And so to understand that, we have to go to the Old Testament. And let's, let's just open our Bibles. If you've got one, we'll, see, we'll actually we'll have it on the screen. Keep your, keep your finger in Romans 8. If you're really skilled at flipping through the Bible, you can go to Deuteronomy 7. And I want to read to you verses 6 7 and 8 of Deuteronomy chapter 7, which speaks about how God made Israel his people. He adopted them. And to understand that, we have to understand humanity up to this point. So remember, God created Adam and Eve in the garden. They were his people, his creation. They had communion and fellowship with him, but they disobeyed God and they were excommunicated. They lost their status as family with God, their intimacy, their fellowship with God was broken and they were excommunicated. We can think of it this way. Because of their sin, they were orphaned, Adam and Eve. They were orphaned by God rightly and justly in the garden. They were excommunicated by him. And then everybody that's been born from Adam and Eve have been born in that same state. We are separated from God. We're part of God's creation, but we are not by nature God's children. And then through this man named Abraham in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 12, God comes and gives his grace 
not because of anything good in Abraham, but solely because of his free, sovereign choice, he chooses a man named Abraham who was wandering in the desert as a pagan idol worshiper and makes him his man and says, I'm going to make a family through you. And Abraham becomes the first of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Father Abraham, right, had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, right? And so Abraham is, is really the first adopted child of God, and through Abraham, he makes a nation, he adopts a nation, but why does he adopt this nation through whom he's going to bring the gospel, through whom he's going to bring Jesus, not because there was anything noteworthy in Israel. Look at what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you, he's speaking to Israel here, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the people. In other words, there's nothing good in you. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, meaning Abraham, which by the way, he wasn't obligated to Abraham. The initiating relationship between God and Abraham was not based on any conditions in Abraham. It was because God just chose him. So he says he's keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So do you see when Paul says back in Romans chapter 8 that you, Christian, have received the spirit of adoption, he's connecting us as children, as true, true children of Abraham, and we're going to see in, when we get to Romans chapter 9 in a few weeks or months or whatever, that what it means to be a child of Abraham ultimately is not to be a physical descendant of Abraham, to have Jewish blood in you, but to be a descendant of faith, that those who have faith like Abraham had are those who are true, truly God's people. And so the point is that I want you to see in Romans chapter 9, or Romans chapter 8 verse 15, is that he says, the way you became a Christian is the same way Abraham became God's man. God showered his grace on you, not because of anything good in you, but simply because of his grace, he chose you. And when we think of just physical adoption in our culture today, the physical adoption of a family, of a mom and dad, of a child, we rejoice in that because we see how that physical adoption is actually a kind of physical picture of this spiritual reality of our spiritual adoption. So, so think of it. Unlike biological birth, adoption, I'm speaking of physical adoption of a child. Think of a couple, mom and a dad, who are adopting a child present day, legally adopting a child. Unlike a biological birth, an adoption is a completely free choice. They're saying, I choose you. I don't have to, but I do. And that's, that's the picture that Paul is saying here. And why is he saying that? What context is he saying it in? 
He's saying that this is who God is to you and what should that produce in you? It should produce a kind of freedom from fear. Freedom from fear from God, freedom from fear from being outside of his protection, because here's the point, if God chose us not because we were awesome, he won't unchoose us when we have unawesome days. Do you see that? And so he's saying then, what should this produce in a Christian? When you see it, it should produce a kind of childlike freedom by which we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. So God is not just merely the judge who has been acquitted. He is the Father who will never leave or forsake. Tim Keller puts it this way. He said that the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. (laughs) We have that kind of access. And how do children speak? They don't speak in seasoned theological terms. They cry out, Abba, Father. And it's by this spirit of adoption that is ours, not because we were awesome, but because, because God's grace is great, that he has made us his, and then that produces in us a kind of childlike trust. And what is Paul hitting on there when he says that we, as children of God, cry out, Abba, Father, well, the only person in the Bible up to this point that has referred to God in such a familial term and this word abba is a it's an aramaic word that would be very it'd be like daddy right it's and, and the only person in the bible that has referred to Jesus up to this point is Jesus and Jesus in fact refers to God this way in the garden of gethsemane look at look at mark let me flip to mark chapter 14 where Jesus is agonizing and praying to God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark chapter 14, verse 32, let me read this little scene here. It says, and they went to a place, Mark 14, verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. (laughs) I mean, there's a whole lot going on there in, in those few verses that talk about Jesus' real humanity, his real suffering. But I just want you to see here, in verse 36, that Jesus speaks to God the Father this way. And Paul is saying that's our privilege. We, we speak, we can speak to God that way. Because remember what Romans 6 says, we are united with Christ. We are in him. We, we're his. We're his. We're, we have this type of relationship with God. And, well, do we? Do you? The Bible says we do, but do you? Here's, here's, here's an application for us. What, what might this produce in the believer before we move on to the next truth is that I, I, think, I, I think that this should produce in us a kind of radical risk-taking 
bold faith. I mean, if God is your father, and if what Tyler read from Jesus' words in Matthew 6 is true, and I believe it all is, and if he is this type of father, and if we need not be afraid because he will never leave us, if all these things are true, and if, if we keep reading in Romans, we see that he will bring us safely home, even if this world will destroy us, then what, what, what do we have to fear? We should take risks. We should send out people to plant a church. We should send out people to be missionaries. We should be generous with our stuff. We should be selfless with our time. We, we, we just shouldn't be the type of people who are always anxious and rushed and just frazzled. There's a kind of freedom that comes with understanding that he loves you because he loves you and nothing else. And this cry, Abba, Father, frees us. It just frees us to forget about ourselves because we are, we're loved. Um, you know, none of us have perfect earthly fathers. None of us do. I, I did not. I had a, a wonderful earthly father. I have a wonderful earthly father. And they were in town this week. And I just spent the last couple of days with him. And as I was thinking about this text, <laughs> I was just thinking about, I'm just, how good it is to just be around my dad. And then I thought, Lord, this, this sort of calmness that I feel in my soul right now is a kind of picture of the spiritual reality that I should feel because I am in you and you are my father and I am free. I'm free. I'm free. And I confess to you that I am, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm wound a little tight. <laughs> and I just, I grind and I want things to go and I'm, I'm anxious, and, um, and I, I, need, I need this truth. I need this truth. Truth number three. The Spirit works assurance in us. And this is, this is very much connected to this, this truth we've just been looking at. But the Spirit works assurance in us. Look at verse 16. It says, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit himself bears witness that we are truly children of God. What, is this, what does this mean to bear witness? Or maybe some of your Bibles say confirm. What does it mean? Well, I think in essence, a, a way of summarizing what that means is that it is, it is God who dwells in us, confirming, testifying, preaching to us, saying to us, yes, you're one of mine. It is not merely inward and instant. It's not merely something that happens inside of us, and it's not something that we instantly have all the time, all that we're ever going to have, assurance. This idea of assurance is not only inward, and it's not all or nothing. It is communal and by degrees. It is communal and by degrees. What do I mean by that? One, I think that this idea of how the Spirit works assurance in our life it's not merely an individual activity that we're supposed to attain as we look introspectively, but God 
puts us, what, is, what do children do when they are adopted? They are put into a family where they have brothers and sisters who help to encourage them into family life. And that's what the life of the church is to be. We are to be a family that validates, encourages, assures, verifies one another's adoption and right standing with God. Think about that. Think about how serious and how incredibly critical in the plan, critical in the plan of God just your role together with your adopted brothers and sisters is. It's not merely to come and just sit next to them, but it's to offer a kind of extension of the Spirit's work of assurance in their lives. Look at what Colossians chapter 3 says here about about life in the local church. It says, Colossians 3, verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Now, this is written to all Christians. Doesn't mean everybody's going to have a Sunday school class or a pulpit ministry or teaching a midweek fellowship, but there's a kind of teaching that we should do in our everyday rhythms of life with one another, a kind of admonishing, a kind of watchfulness over one another. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. In fact, you realize that what we're doing here corporately when we worship, it's not warm up. And, it's, and think about it this way. It's not merely just to God, although clearly we are singing to God. But we're also singing to another. There's a kind of vertical and horizontal aspect to worship whereby the way that you sing songs, the way that you come into the building on Sunday is a kind of part of your brotherhood or sisterhood with your adopted family around you. So if you were an older child in your family, you you know that there was times that your mother ran to the grocery store and left you alone. And it was kind of that teetering on the edge age. You were about 12 and your little brother was about nine. And they ventured out into the wild and left you alone in the zoo. (laughs) And your mother said to you, watch your little brother and make sure he doesn't die. (laughs) And in a sense... We have that kind of responsibility over each other. And we help each other not die when we don't stay up until 2 o'clock in the morning watching garbage on Saturday Night Live. Coming into church sleepy and grumpy and self-absorbed and mumbling a song. I'm just going to let that one sit for a little while, Phil. But when we come in with a kind of otherliness about us and we think, you know, I don't particularly care for that song, but I'm going to sing it. Because there's a, there's a kind of ministry that I'm doing to others around me. Or you get that midweek email saying, it's your turn to serve. Four-year-olds. The crazies. Man, you show up and there's a smile on your face and you're ready to go and there's just a a kind of buoyancy, a kind of 
a kind of selflessness to what you do and it's communal and you, and you exhort, we help one another follow Jesus and we, we care for one another. We don't shoot out of here and we, we invite each other to lunch. We, we get to know one another. We meet for coffee. We look at each other in the eyes and we say, how are you? How can I pray for you? And we have to chip away at the hardness of our social veneer. But if we do it after Sunday, after Sunday, after Sunday, it does something in our lives and it does something in the culture of the church. Listen to what, listen to what he, the writer of Hebrews says. He, just, he, gets, he gets right into this. He jumps in this. He does a cannonball in the deep end on this very thing. Hebrews 10, verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. In other words, since you are no longer an enemy of God, you're a child of God, since you can enter the holy place, since you can wake up the king at 3 o'clock in the morning because of what Jesus did for you, by the new and living way that is open for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What is that describing? That's describing a son or a daughter. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, the fact that he has to say that you shouldn't waver implies to me that wavering is what we are prone to do. <laughs> so let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And then look at the, that's been all vertical at this point. Look at the horizontal outreach now, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, assurance is a community project. That's why we stress membership here. We think that it's ingrained in the Bible. We think that you should go through a membership class if you've been attending a church for a long time and that you should hear what we believe about the Bible. You should hear what we think is important in the Christian life and and one of the things that we do is we like to sit down with people who are prospective members and ask them how they came to Christ and make sure that they understand the gospel because we don't want to give them a kind of false assurance. We don't want to make them think that they're right with God just because they're physically present in the building. And so we ask you to tell us, well, how did you become a Christian? What is the gospel? Friends, that's what baptism is for. We, we, we've, we've, we've created a culture in America where people can respond with every head bowed and every eye closed and somebody raises their hand and the pastor says, oh, I see that hand. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that is, if that is how it happened with you and that was a moment where you feel like you came to Christ, I, I am not criticizing that. I'm just saying that more often than not, those environments are prone to give people false assurance. And God has given us in his scriptures baptism as a kind of way of publicly saying, hey, I'm with these people. That's what baptism is. You're saying, I'm joined to Christ, and I'm joined to his body, the church. And in just a moment, here, we're going to receive communion, and we're going to come around this table. And what this meal is, is it's not just a mere ritual that Christians do occasionally to remember what Jesus did. It is a family meal where we are coming to the table and we're sitting down for Sunday supper and we're looking at one another and we're confessing afresh to each other, I'm still trusting in Jesus. 
and we encourage one another and we all come to the table. We come limping and broken, but we come receiving afresh the good news of the gospel, reminding ourselves that we are his children. Friends, have I made the case yet that church life is important? I hope I have. And then finally, let me just say this before we move on. The assurance is by degrees. What do I mean by this? Is it's, not, it's, not, it's not like assurance just comes like a wave and you got it? Okay, I got that. Boom, I got it. Boom. I got that card and I'm going to put it in my pocket and I got it. It comes by degrees. Think about this verse about just sanctification itself. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that we all with unveiled face, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, we all with unveiled face are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. That's the Christian life. We grow. It's, we're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a progressive event. Well, I think that's how sanctification works as well. I'm sorry, I think that's how assurance works as well. But let's just be gracious to one another. I think there's reasons for the for why sanctification and assurance come in degrees. We, different people have different personality types and psychological makeups. Some of us are just kind of happy-go-lucky. And by God's grace, you were kind of made that way. You're, you're, just, you're just chipper. And yes, I'm a sister. <laughs> praise God. Praise God for chipper people. But some of us have a kind of melancholy about us. And praise God for melancholy people. Because they humble with chipper people. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mean for that to be funny. See, people that are always kind of happy can sometimes sort of cruise through life not realizing just how broken this world is. And naturally happy people need naturally sad people. <laughs> and naturally sad people need happy people and God puts them together and they work assurance together that's why that's why in first Thessalonians it says this first Thessalonians chapter 5 I love this text it says first Thessalonians 5 verse 14 and we urge you brothers admonish the idle encourage the faint-hearted help the weak be patient with them all. So assurance comes in degrees. We're, we have good seasons and bad seasons. And, and part of the Christian life in community is, is we help one another weather storms. And what effect should this have on the Christian as they are doing assurance in a community project sort of way, well, I think it's the same as what it was what we just said before. It should be a kind of boldness, a kind of humble confidence, a kind of risk-taking faith. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for, his all, for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? And all things does not necessarily mean earthly riches. But it means everything that our hearts could desire forever and ever and ever with him. And we're going to see that in a second, which brings us to this last point. Number four, the fourth way the Spirit works in our lives in this text is the Spirit lifts our eyes to the future. 
It lifts our eyes. He lifts our eyes to the future. Look at verse 17. So let me just read 16 again and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are called children of God. And if children, verse 17, then, gosh, this word, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified him. Man, verse 17 is a sentence. It says that if you are in Christ, if you're adopted by him, you are an heir, you're a co-heir with Christ. What is an heir? What is an heir of God? What is this? Just to think about this word heir. Uh, my parents were in town and uh, we were, we, I was thinking, we, we were talking about, they, they just moved from my hometown of El Centro to kind of right outside of San Diego. And um, they're selling their house that they paid off years ago. And I was jokingly asking them at dinner, they're, they're on their way to the airport right now, they're not here, so if you're looking around for them right now, they're, just, they're not here. But they were, they're selling their house and, um, you know, I just started to think, well, I mean, you paid off your mortgage years ago, so... You know, I mean, the profits of that house, I mean, you guys, you're kind of getting up there. So, you know, just, just sort of hang on to that money and maybe me and my brother can split that thing in about 15, 20 years. How about it? <laughs> I'm terrible thought. I was just kidding with my dad. And he says, no, son, we're going we're gonna to pay off our rent and we're going to travel a little bit. I mean, the goal is for us to spend every dime of that sale. <laughs> so when I, all right. But we understand this idea of heir, don't we? We, we inherit. We, it's, but it's not just we, we inherit, you know, part of a 401k. We, what does the Bible say we inherit? Well, first of all, according to what we looked at a few months ago when we were in Romans 6, it says we are, you, we are united with Christ. So remember this doctrine of union with Christ? So all that is Christ is ours. So we died a death with him, and we were raised with him in a resurrection like his. We are now united with him. Now he is the groom. We are the bride. We've been united with him. So all that is his is ours. And, and this is what 1 Corinthians says. Paul, Paul kind of answers this question in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is divisions and squabbles in the church. They were being small and territorial. And some people were saying, well, I'm, I'm you know, a follower of this teacher. I'm a follower of that teacher. And Paul is trying to squash the argument by showing them that what is theirs is not just some earthly esteem because they're attached to a particular crowd, but what's theirs in Christ is far more enormous than they can ever imagine. So look at 1 Corinthians 3 verse 18. This is what Paul says. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. And so, verse 21, he concludes this. He says, so let no one boast in men. In other words, don't grab towards these earthly things. Why? For all things are yours. 
whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. What's he saying? That He's saying that you have been joined to in your salvation the heir, the king, the inheritor of all things. And so there is this sure and certain future that the Holy Spirit has secured in the life of a believer who is an adopted child of God, who is an heir of God, that should detach our hands from the moth and rust-destroying treasures of this world because it's all ours anyway. And by that, I'm not talking about possessions. I'm talking about Christ. What's ours? Him, our all in all, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. One very important distinction. The servant is not greater than his master. Jesus says in the Gospel of John that if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. And so we're going to suffer. That's what we're going to look at in a couple weeks. We're going to not preach in Romans for Easter Sunday, but we're going to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25, the following Sunday, which says that the suffering that we endure necessarily as a kind of validation of our sonship is not worth being compared to the glory that awaits us. And so Jesus says that I suffered, you will suffer. You're not suffering as payment for your sins. He's done that once and for all. But we will endure suffering of various kinds in this life as a kind of display of how Jesus is better than a 401k. He's better than a perfect little family. He's better than good health. He's better than all of these things. He's better than a successful church. He's better than a successful career. And God says here that one of the ways that he validates, that he authenticates our status with him is we have to deal with suffering in this life as a pathway to the glory that is certainly ours. And think about this. In, in verse 17, he says that we, also, that we may also be glorified. Future tense. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, it says that we are already glorified. So he's taking us to a place that is already ours. You're a child of God if you're in Christ. He will bring his children safely home. That's the point of this text. And that's what the Spirit does. He assures us of that. So what might you take from this if you're a believer? What can man do to you? What Think of the most anxiety-producing situation in your life right now in comparison to what this text has said about who you are. What, what can it do to you? And if you're not a believer in Christ, I exhort you that you are not a child of God merely because you're alive, but you are only a child of, made a child of God through your trust in Christ, what he has done for you. 
in just a moment, we're going to come around this table as a faith family and we're going to receive communion. And if you are a believer in Jesus, you're part of the family of God and you're welcome to this table, to this meal, to this family meal. If you're not trusting in Jesus, you shouldn't take this meal, not, not because we're trying to exclude you in any way, but we don't want to give you false, we would be wicked friends if we somehow made you think that you were okay with a holy God merely because you were physically present today. We want to communicate to you out of love, hoping that you will turn from sin and trust in Christ yourself, that the only way you can come to this table is through Christ, not through your own merits, not through just the fact that you're alive, not through your desire to be good, but through Christ. You must turn from trusting in your sins and put your hope in him. If you have not done that, I'm so glad you're here. I, I pray you keep coming and hear the gospel. But this meal is for Christians. Let's pray now and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts to come to a family meal. Paul gives instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 where he says that we should examine ourselves and that we should look to Christ and remember what he has done. Let's do that now. As the ushers come forward to be prepared to serve us, let's pray and prepare our hearts. Father, what a glorious truth that we are not just justified, we are adopted if we are in Christ. And by this spirit that indwells us, we can cry out, Abba, Father. We can interrupt you at three o'clock in the morning. We are not merely pardoned rebels. We are the children of God. And we are co-heirs with Christ. Lord, it's almost too glorious for our hearts and minds to comprehend. In fact, we will never plumb the depths of this beautiful truth. But may we in this moment, as we come to this table, taste and see that the Lord our Father is good and that we need not be anxious and that we can give our lives away because all things are ours in you. As we come to the table, Lord, make us humble and glad for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name I pray.